millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Subtle results. Still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia Gravis or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Billboard on Broadway podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Millsoff, senior editor at Billboard. I am back from vacation. I have a cold, but I am here to serve your musical theater needs as always. So when I think of all the musicals I've seen over the past year, it's a pretty diverse mix of shows. Uh, There are revivals of older shows that are in new productions on Broadway now. There are new musicals that are based on movies, both large and small. There are shows with totally original scores and shows that are building on pre-existent scores. But maybe the most surprising show I've seen and maybe the most difficult to categorize is SpongeBob SquarePants. This is a musical that technically is based on the Nickelodeon show that is hugely popular with kids and many adults, Uh, but it's really more inspired by it, by the characters, by the spirit of the show, and it kind of takes off from there. And the music is different from anything I've ever heard on Broadway. Uh, Each song is actually by a different artist from the pop, rock, country, and hip-hop worlds. And thanks to some really amazing work by the composer, orchestrator, and arranger Tom Kitt, it all somehow coheres into a score that sounds whole and adds to the story and, of course, also really sounds like the popular music of today because the artists who contributed include Cindy Lauper, Sarah Bareilles, John Legend, Lady Antebellum, T.I., The Plain White Tees, Panic at the Disco, Aerosmith's Steven Tyler and Joe Perry, and many, many more. I saw the show months ago at this point, but I remain pretty amazed that throwing all those artists' different sensibilities together actually really worked well for the show in the end, and I wanted to know more about how it all came together. So I was happy this past week to talk to a few of the creative people who have been central to bringing SpongeBob to life on stage. Tina Landau, who came up with both the concept of the show and is the director, Tom Kitt, who, in addition to the roles I already mentioned, is also the show's musical supervisor, 
and star Ethan Slater, who gives a truly remarkable performance that you may have heard of as SpongeBob. Yes, he is somehow convincing as a human sponge. Uh, All three of them are Tony nominees now, and the show actually is tied with Mean Girls for the most Tony nominations this year with 12 total. So it was especially exciting to chat with these three for this week's episode. Well, hello, SpongeBob folk. Hello. Hello. <laughs> billboard folk. <laughs> One billboard folk, three SpongeBob folk. Um, I'm very excited to see you all. It's, uh, I saw the show a while ago now, but it is still so prominent in my mind in neon colors. <laughs> That's the way we like it. Good. Yes. <laughs> well, I will never forget it. Um, so, First of all, before we get into talking about the show, who are all you people who are sitting with me and one person not sitting with me? Well, one of the two people sitting with you is me, and that would be Tina Landau. I'm the writer. No. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. That is so weird. I'm not the writer. <laughs> but <laughs> I, I play the only thing you're not. I play SpongeBob Square. Oh, no, no. That's wrong, too. Okay. I'm the conceiver and director of the production. And uh, I'm Tom Kitt. I am the music supervisor, orchestrator, and arranger. And I'm the one on the phone. I'm Ethan Slater, and I play SpongeBob. You you have one role. Very simple and and straightforward. (laughs) One thing, yeah. (laughs) Excellent. Well, first of all, I have to say congratulations to you guys because you got, like, umpteen million Tony Award nominations. Um, I I sort of want to know what a Tony nomination celebration is like at SpongeBob. I imagine it's especially wacky and fun. (laughs) Yeah. Ethan, what was that night like at the theater? Oh, that that night was really wild. Uh, I think everyone was just you know, we've, we're we're all everyone in the cast is like super proud of the show and is every night. Uh, but there is something really nice about like getting this top to bottom recognition of the artistry across the board. So when we all came in that day, I think it was a Tuesday, the energy was sort of off the wall, and we were just. Um, I think somebody likened it to the our first dress rehearsal when we had our first audience of like you know 250 people and our energy was just like so out there and we were just so excited to be doing the show again um so yeah i, I mean i gotta tell you like our, our energy doing the show every night is like pretty wild and we're yeah. like really into it but th- there was um a little something extra special that night <laughs> yeah and also it's been so great because it's the Tonys, but there's also a slew of other awards from the Outer Critics to sure. the Drama League, the Drama Desk. And we've been so recognized across the boards at all of them that this whole chapter in time, this period, I think, for the whole production and the cast and everyone working on it, just feels like a nice celebration of what we've achieved and hopefully an invitation to more people to come see the show. All right. Yeah. Well, well, I have to say that I was I basically knew very little about SpongeBob coming into it. I was not someone who had watched the show as I think as a pop music fan, I knew that a lot of artists had done music for the shows like CDs and and had like David Bowie made an appearance. Um, but that was kind of the limit of what I knew and then I started hearing buzz about oh, the SpongeBob musical is going to be really great and I was like, "Really? 
Are yeah. you sure? <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, I saw it. And um, there are so many unique and, and really enjoyable things about it. And altogether, I'm not the first person to say this. Like, it just it feels sort of like an art project come to life in a really fun way. <laughs> I love that description. Yeah. No, that was that was kind of what I walked away with. So, Tina, I want to start with you, Tina, because you've had a pretty storied and extensive career before this and you've done like a lot of really serious plays you've done like premiere musicals as well and then this sort of stands out in your resume as like (laughs) so I'm curious you know when Nickelodeon came to you about this what made you think ah this is something that I have to do and that I can bring something to yeah well I know it's funny because people look at my body of work if you will and and think I'm this some like serious experimental avant-garde theater director when in fact I would say Spongebob is exactly an expression of who I really am (laughs) and and the work I feel like I've been doing my whole life which is just wanting to create theater events that are spontaneous and live and layered Um, but yes it is true when Nickelodeon first came and said did I want to come in and pitch for the project Actually, I was talking to my agent, and I said an immediate no. Um, For kind of the reason (laughs) you just said, which is, you know, you hear SpongeBob musical, and you go, what? How? Why? (laughs) And um, I had, you know, the image of big uh, theme park or arena show characters with big foam heads in, in, in my imagination, and I knew that was something I wasn't interested in. But then my agent said, Steve Hillenburg, who's the creator of the series is interested in Broadway only if it has an indie spirit. Those were the two words he hmm. used. And they don't want, they want something, you know, out, outside the box. They're looking for a fresh approach and a reason to do it as a, as a theater piece. And when I heard that, and I was kind of given permission to imagine exactly the kind of show I would get into seeing, which was somewhere between an art installation and a rock concert and a party and a great story kind of all wrapped up in one. I thought, yes, this is a property that allows for that and, in fact, invites it because that's the topsy-turvy, anything-is-possible world that the series is. So I, you know, I had a 180 and I said, count me in, let me try to get this job. And, you know, I started developing ideas. And the way you described it really is, I think, what comes across in the end. And I think it's so hard to, I think even musicals that are very well done that come from a huge commercial property in some way, it's very hard for there not to be some like underlying corporate spirit to them. And you don't get that here at all. I am so glad you say that because I really applaud Nickelodeon, really. I mean, they deserve all the credit because they never said, we're doing this show and now we have to figure out how. They always said, we're experimenting. And if you guys make something in a room that we feel is fresh and original, we'll take the next step. They had zero interest in you know cash, a cash cow. They had 100% interest in making you know a, a lively, accessible commercial piece of art. And um, Ethan knows because he was, he was, on this project, you know, from one of the early workshops, but uh, they really supported the development process, and I'm so glad that you received it that way. I was curious, Tom and Ethan, which one of you was involved first? Because Ethan, you were involved a really long time with us. 
It's, yeah, I, uh, it's Ethan. Ethan was first. <laughs> <laughs> Ethan came yeah, before the music. <laughs> I was, yeah, I was there. Um, I was there before there was a script. Um, <laughs> or and, a score, uh, yeah. Was, or a score, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, when we with that first workshop, I don't remember anyone saying this is going to be a musical. I, I'm, I'm sure you knew it was, uh, but until, like you, until you made the presentation where you talked about the score. Um, I, I remember really well, actually, you're, you're, you were talking about the score of the movie, and you said, uh, you know, the, the SpongeBob um, movie has this amazing score comprised of songs by Weezer and Ween and Wilco, and then everyone was just trying to think of another band with a W name. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, no, like, I'm thinking about yeah. Wallflowers. Yeah. Well, well, Wallflowers. <laughs> well, yes, well, <laughs> oh, that's good. Well, yeah, because, Ethan, because... My original pitch to Nickelodeon included this idea that the score would be written by a variety of artists because that's very much the way, again, the way the TV show works. It's it's right. a mashup of there's a country western song and a rock song and, and you know, it's, it's a world about juxtaposition. So that was part of my original pitch. And that first workshop you're describing was really about movement. It was really about can a human being embody and express and convey these cartoon characters in ways that make them, you know, expandable and contractable and embody the spirit. So it was purely experimental. And Ethan answered that question for us. (laughs) (laughs) Can I say something about uh, Tina's body of work, Uh, what you were talking about earlier? (laughs) I suppose so. I I, I just... um, I've been thinking a bunch about this in terms of like the show being like an art project and, and all and all of that stuff. I I got to see um, I've only gotten to see two of Tina's shows while we were working on SpongeBob, um, you know, over the past six years, and I saw them both multiple times. But one of them was Old Hats when uh, David Shiner and Bill Irwin did a clown show that she directed with like you know, with uh, original music, and I remember watching it and thinking like, oh yeah, this is our show. Like there's like the clowning, the the comedy, but the way mm-hmm. that it's woven together with this music and the art, you know, it was like this beautiful thing. And then I saw Big Love, which uh-huh. was a which was a Charles Me show, and I was watching that. And I was like, oh yeah, this is our show. You know, it's like it's, <laughs> it's like uh, avant garde, sort of you know, over the top, you know, some in some moments, and then really down to earth and other. And and they're like two very different shows in some way, um, but they're but. It, it, they have the the Tina stamp of like, of of expression in in a way that someone might not think to express an idea, but it really hits you and it's got the comedy alongside the the real you know human emotions. Um, and I thought it was really cool to see those two things sort of side by side. In some ways very different, in some ways very similar, and both you know, akin to Spongebob. Um, and I, I've been thinking about that a bunch while we've been doing the show. Cool. That's cool, Ethan. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> uh, yeah. So when you come up with this very unique concept for the score, at what point, Tom, do you enter into the picture? I think I first met uh, with Tina and Kyle um, in 2012. I think it was the fall of 2012 because my first... Um, experience working on the show was the summer of 2013 Um, and at that point I believe we had around seven songs um, that we were um, workshopping including Best Day Ever 
Um, and I remember Nina Esman at 321, man, uh, the general management company, um, called me and said, um, so uh, I, I'm wondering if you might want to come in and, and talk with Tina Landau and Kyle Jero about SpongeBob there. And she presented me the, the concept of, of, of um, all these iconic pop writers contributing songs. And she knew, um, I mean, we've, we go back a long way, but, but she specifically talked about American Idiot and what I had done um, on that production is thinking that I, I might be someone worth um, bringing in. So, um, you know, SpongeBob, um, all of these incredible writers and then you know Tina someone who I've I've just had such admiration for and the thought of being in the room with her was was as exciting as as anything so um, so I came in and I met with them and I, I talked about how I thought I could I could serve the project and thankfully they they hired me and um, it's, it's it's an interesting thing being a composer and also working in this capacity because you know the the other credit that I that I do have on the show is is additional music and I have written a fair amount of music um, for transitions for um, there's 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 action sequences in the show that I've scored kind of like a film hmm. um, but you know I I knew that all of these writers who are very busy in their lives very successful they're touring they're recording. Um, it was an unknown of how much they were going to be able to be in the room and a new musical just needs to, to evolve every second you're working on it especially mm -hmm. in how music is functioning so whether it's vocal arrangements um, it's working out what the form of the song is going to be it's mm -hmm. it's figuring out different themes and how those themes are going to come back into the into the show and 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 have dramatic um, weight even um, apart from just the songs that they are but Jonathan Colton's theme of Bikini Bottom Day is something we use quite a lot. There's there's a very moving moment where we take the Flaming Lips melodic um, content and use it at the end of the show. Um, it, it was my job to just figure out how this was going to be a the theatrical score. And granted, when you have all of these different sensibilities, it's not like um, every song is coming from the same place and you can say it's cohesive in that way. But I think that we as composers in the musical theater, we are always trying to expand our own vocabulary and come up with different sensibilities and tonalities for a moment. And um, and what Tina and Kyle did so brilliantly was they found exactly where the show wants to sing. Every moment that they came up with is a true musical moment. So I think that informed the writing, and then that came into me, and I was able to then take those moments and figure out how I was going to serve them theatrically. Yeah, it's it's kind of astounding what Tom did. I mean, really, when you think about it, which I'm now thinking about. <laughs> no, because because he honored the sound of every demo that we got from everyone which ranged the gamut from like simple piano accompaniment to oh some were just like acapella things into iPhones and others were fully arranged and but Tom uh, was was really determined to honor the original sound of that artist we wanted it to sound like them but then found somehow to turn the whole into a score and a lot of that does have to do with his own writing chops I mean he's a brilliant composer and the amount of music he wrote for this is is the thing that really turns it into a theater score. Well, it is w amazing that it sounds like a coherent score in the end. I, I mean, when I heard the concept, I thought it was really cool, but I was like, what Ooh. is this gonna sound like? Um, but I mean, trusting that Tom is great at what he does, but still it seems like a big uh, project for someone. It's, it's a big project, but I can't say enough about what the writers brought to mm. the table. I mean, they were all mm -hmm. so, it was obvious how inspired they were, mm -hmm. how much they loved the source material. 
even something like you know, this was Tina's uh, idea to to she she plucked that David Bowie song, um, No Control, and and how many times we use that theme because it's such a great, it's such a tense musical theme. Um, and every time you hear it, you know exactly what we're doing. But to but to find that song and then find how we can keep using it throughout the evening, um, those were the things that you know. Every workshop we were able to really discover. Um, but what we had from these artists, what they gave us in terms of their own passion and talents, was just astounding. Did you give them any guidance as they were writing in terms yeah. of like a kind of sound or sensibility that yeah. you wanted? I just yes, and I'll answer that. And I also want to say about the David Bowie song. That's the only song other than a, a song from the TV show that wasn't written specifically for the show, mm -hmm. although um, it was rewritten for the show, yeah. it, lyrically mm -hmm. and arrangement-wise. Um, and what happened with David Bowie was he wanted to participate, but at the time that we reached out to him, he was unable to for you know, work and health reasons, mm -hmm. um, and basically said to us, choose any song you want and we'll make it work. Wow. So that was that was cool. Um, yes, what happened was Kyle and I first went through what the song moments were and kind of figured them out. Then a combination of myself and a, a lot of help from a, a man named Doug Cohn, mm -hmm. who's um, the music guy at Nickelodeon, we would make lists of who would be the appropriate artist for that slot. And... Um, and as Tom said earlier today, it, it was it's kind of a combination of folks we thought would be right combined with folks I wanted to meet or work with, like my <laughs> fantasy list. Um, we would approach them. Doug did a lot of that work. Once we got them on board, which they were all pretty quick to be because they are SpongeBob fans, who knew? Um, I would give them a nice hefty packet that described what the song was, the script pages around it, where it fit in the story. Um, in many cases, like title ideas or hook ideas or um, lyric prompts. And uh, the deal was that they would send something and then we had an opportunity for one rewrite where I would give notes back and then after that the song would be for us to do as we needed in the show. But I have to say, for the most part, the first thing these guys turned in was pretty much it. Wow. They just nailed it across the board. Mm -hmm. I wish every time a new song came in, we, we stared at each other with our mouths agape, being like, ah, it's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, how much of, I, I guess I was struck by the fact that I think all of these songs do sound like the artists themselves, but and yet, but yet they all sound part of a greater whole and don't sound like they were jigsawed together. Um, I mean, how much of that is sort of magic that you're working, Tom? Um, you know, I, th I think it, it, each each moment has its own individual process. Um, you know, something like like Best Day Ever, for example, um, which I, I I just loved writing that vocal arrangement. It's actually the first thing that I did, and and I could just feel right away with what Tina described in the moment, um, how heartfelt that that wanted to be. And so I just went Beach Boys. I just thought that's that's what this is speaking to me. Mm -hmm. um, then you have something like I'm Not a Loser, where we knew we were creating a gargantuan production number. So they might be giants sent us this hilarious demo. 
um, basically that that took it through I would say the the second chorus and then kind of a suggestion mm -hmm. of a, a stride piano um, uh, way to go but um, you know about the time that Squidward says clarinet solo it's yes. it's me and Chris Catelli and Tina in a room you know working out how, where this is gonna go and and it was just add-on add-on then we can do that and then we can do that um, and that's those kinds of things were were where we were really um, putting our heads together and, and being creative and and adding on to what had already been brilliantly presented to us so then you get something like the John Legend song which um, I mean I don't I, I won't speak for Tina but but I was kind of in tears when I first heard it because he you could tell John sent it from I think he was deep in his tour and it sounded like something that he did at three in the morning you know just it's like I've been there where it's like I need to find that one time when I can just sit at the <laughs> piano and do this and you can hear there's just a little bit of rawness to uh, his yeah he voice. was sick actually when he recorded it so, yeah. yeah so he was he was obviously you know dealing with that but it actually made it more beautiful because you just feel his heart on his sleeve and that demo informed for me exactly how that song was going to be fun functioning in the show. The vocal arrangement's very simple, just just a little bit of an echo that SpongeBob and Patrick have, and then a string yeah. quartet and, and a little bit of, of reed color to it. But but those were the things that, whether they were just on piano, as Tina said, even acapella, I was able to hear in the artist's voice what the sensibility was going to be, and then just follow my instincts and, and hopefully do the right thing. Well, yeah, I mean, that's a great example, I think, because I remember when I heard it, I was like, this is just like a nice, like, essence of John Legend's song. Like, very, like you said, very simple, to the point, no frills. And I mean, these songs all, they don't feel like pop artists writing for the theater. Like, they sound like they're just writing what they usually would. Yes. And it all happens to fit together really well. Yeah. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to LinkedIn.com slash results to claim your credit. That's LinkedIn.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. As Ethan, as someone who's actually performing these songs, um, do you see kind of a binding element to all of them or just an overall tone or feel that the music in the show has that, that you really enjoy? Um, yeah, for sure. I mean, I think both Tom and Tina were talking about like the incidental music and, and 
the things that Tom wrote and how he like took motifs and wove them through. Um, and I, I'm still, you know, when, when you're like really focusing on building the show, you sometimes don't really listen to the music that happens while you're running off stage or, <laughs> you know, like, like there's like, you're like, Oh yeah, there's something that's playing there. I just don't really remember what it is, but I, like, you know, I'm, I'm getting to hear those little, like, you know, the no control coming in when, whenever, um, whenever danger is near. Um, but the, I mean, you definitely feel it. Um, I, I will say like that John legend song is like still my favorite song to sing. Um, I mean, I, mean, I love, I love singing all of the songs, but that one, like it really, the intimacy of it, it takes me back to the first time that, that the cast heard the, the demo. Mm. I don't know if we're supposed to talk about this. Oh, I no, you totally can. I remember like, that. Exactly. We were doing this workshop and there was one week until we like started teching the workshop. We, we were we were really at the end of it. And we still didn't have this song from John Legend because he was he's an incredibly busy and brilliant man. Um, and the song came in. And Tina came into rehearsal that day, and she says, "I, you know, I just need to, I just need to play it for you. Sit down on the floor." She turned off the lights and she put it on over the speakers, and like just everyone was in tears. It was like it, we'd been waiting for this song. We knew that it was like sort of the emotional crux of the second act for SpongeBob and Patrick, and um, and it was just perfect, and it was beautiful, and it was heartbreaking, um, and and it was intimate. And it still is every night. Um, it, it like it yeah. still has that feeling of sitting on the floor with your eyes closed and and hearing the yearning in John Legend's voice. And and mm -hmm. um, but this time, you know, there's a little bit of guitar coming in over the piano. And is there an oboe in that? There's Tom? clarinet. Yeah, there's, oh, there's, there's clarinet that, that come in. Uh, um, I think it's like a clarinet. There may be two, like a bass clarinet. It, hap clarinet. it happens after that. Uh, after the little bridge. It's it's right? in the. They, they come they come in and out but they 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 first come in and on, on your pre-chorus you know right right you know and, and when we talk about the whole score sounding cohesive if you think about it i'm thinking of some of ethan's big songs so he's singing john legend ballad and miss you he's singing simple sponge a panic at the disco like rock ballad <laughs> he's singing um hero Hero by Cindy Lauper. He's singing BFF by the Plain White Tees and Tom Higginson. And what's amazing is, again, those songs all kind of hint at and sound like those artists. But Ethan is also singing all of them, <laughs> you know? And so he's also something that pulls it all together. He's yeah. not, you know, it took a bit to figure out how he should sing in the show because we didn't want him singing like SpongeBob the whole time. So... <laughs> You know, he's singing kind of like Ethan, but he's been remarkable in his ability to both maintain his own voice, but also have flavors and mm. echoes of these artists also. Well, I, this brings me to something I, I wanted to bring up, which is that, I mean, Ethan, I mean, I think part of what's so remarkable about your performance is that you're you're like a living cartoon but you're also not a living cartoon <laughs> like you you know you are Spongebob but there's there, there's not a cartoonish element to the way you play him and um, I, I'm glad that you mentioned clowning because it does have that more human element that, that uh, clowning has and I was curious like how much of the overall feel of the show from the the general tone to the music kind of sprung from Ethan's interpretation and Ethan being Ethan. Oh, geez. <laughs> yes, all of it. 
Yeah. Uh, <laughs> me? Am I, am I to speak on that? I don't. Yeah. I don't know. I'm. I'm um, I feel uh, like I've had this really amazing, you know, safety trampoline underneath me at all times in Tina, and uh, I've I've sort of had the the freedom to, you know make strong and wrong choices and I'll still bounce back up and get to make another one. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I, I, in terms of like, in terms of the score, um, and singing in these sort of variety of styles and like still being SpongeBob and yet sounding, you know, within the realm of the, of the genre. And also, you know, I, I think it all came down to sort of playing the truth of the moment, which is something that Tina was really good at keeping, keeping me honest on um and like you know if you're playing the truth of i guess i miss you you're gonna sound a little bit in the genre of john legend and if you're if you're trying to amp someone up to get them to be heroic you're gonna sound a little bit like cindy lopper um so i i think at the end of the day it was letting go of trying to trying to be a cartoon and embracing the fact that if you play to the truth of SpongeBob, um, people are going to know that you're SpongeBob. Um, yeah, yeah I, and, I don't know. That's that's yeah. as close as I can get. That makes sense. No, it does. <laughs> and and I think what happened was we were really informed by and inspired by the series, the cartoon, as we started mm-hmm. work. But at a certain point, and I'm not even sure on which of the ten years it happened because we've been working on it for ten years, it. This took on its own life. We we f- forgot the show in a way, and mm-hmm. and believed that we were creating our own universe and characters and stories. And we always knew what their seed was and and who they honored. But we were never trying to replicate that or imitate that. Um, and we just took this on as an original piece. Yeah, also- that's like. Oh yeah, sorry. Go on. No, I'm just going to say that 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 what I find also so extraordinary is that <clears throat> Ethan um, came to this project at such a young age, yeah. And I've marveled at his work ethic, his responsibility, uh, or should I say, his sense <clears throat> of responsibility. I mean, he no one works harder. He has a gargantuan task in this show, and um, yeah. the the vocal demands, not just the singing, but to put on. And I, I say this about our entire cast. Um, if you're going to infuse your voice with the kind of animated spirit that the show has, it can be really wearing. And um, he's taken great care of himself, and he's also been such a leader. Um, so, so, so to watch a young performer have this much maturity um, right out of the gate um, and be so collaborative, because he's taught us all about the show, uh, what he's describing is stuff that he naturally brought to it. Because we, we were asking these questions, and mm-hmm. he answered them for us. Yes, exactly. Oh, and you know he was God. he was right Ethan you were in the first workshop you were between your sophomore and junior year in college is that right yeah yeah, yeah that's right so he yeah I was I was studying your book in, in school <laughs> <laughs> it's true I remember seeing Ethan that um, he, he showed up at If Then and he had a beard and I thought oh is, is this like the other dimension Spongebob and then Spock. <laughs> very weird to see Spongebob with a beard <laughs> I, I kind of can't imagine it Wow, it's uh, it's not it's not the most rugged beard. <laughs> it looked good though. It, it served oh, well. Thank you, so, someday, thank you. It's a beard that's try. It's it's trying its best. <laughs> it's absolutely trying its best. 
I have to say, by the way, I just noticed Tina has a pineapple necklace on, which is amazing. Oh, yeah. This, it was given to me by my niece and her boyfriend right around opening. I kind of want opening. one now. And, and my, oh, and my watch. This is a new watch I just bought. It has, Tina has the best watch. It has fishies on it. It has yes. fish. Yeah, no, I'm kind of SpongeBob low-key today, though. But you know what? I just, as I was working on the show, every time I had a meeting at Nickelodeon, they would say, do you want to come into the merch room and take... And so I have a massive amount of SpongeBob t-shirts and sneakers. Oh, and my, my bag over there is a SpongeBob bag, as you can see on the floor, the knapsack. Yes. Wow. So, yeah. You're swagged out as, swa- as SpongeBob I'm a, is concerned. I'm a living swag. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I wondered, you know, thinking about this, the score, it's so unique in terms of what I've seen on Broadway thus far. I don't think there's really ever been something like this. And I wondered if you think that putting a score together this way is something that was very unique to this project and appropriate for this and maybe not for other shows or if it's something that could kind of be a model for new musicals going forward especially those that are bringing pre-existing content and original music uh, together Uh, I'm gonna say this and it it might be an unpopular opinion because one kind of wants to say oh yeah it's a, a new model um I think it could be right for certain projects, but it all depends on the material and the content. Because this choice was made not because it was a novel idea. Mm -hmm. It was made because it's an expression of the universe of Bikini Bottom. You know, like it, when I thought about what does this world sound like, it doesn't sound like one thing. Um, it's sea shanties and surfer rock and, like I said, country western. And so that's what the score needed to sound like. And rather than thinking of one composer who would kind of do pastiche versions of these different styles, mm-hmm. I thought, why not get, like, the real people? Like, get a real hip-hop artist to write the rap. Um, so I feel like this idea was born out of content and and the material itself. If I was doing another musical that was, you know, an original story and something dramatic, I I would probably want one composer. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel like it's very case specific, but I'm happy to say that I, I, I do think we have shown that it can work. I don't know. Tom? No, I think that's exactly right. I think it's, it's content-based. Um, I wrote a score for Bring It On uh, with Lin-Manuel Miranda. Yes. Um, I'm that, the number one fan of Bring It On the Musical <laughs> in the world. And that was presented um, right away that, that we were going to be doing that together and, and for the same kind of dramatic reasons that Tina just mentioned in terms of the concept. And, and, and I loved that process. I also worked on a musical called Stars of David, which is based on Abigail Pogrebin's wonderful book. Oh, that book. Um, uh, interviews with... I with, went to with, college with Abby. Did you really? Yeah, I directed her in Bells Are Ringing. That's right. <laughs> yeah, and she, yeah, she was in uh, Merrily We Roll Along. Yes. Yeah. In the original the, production. In the so, film too. so, and that's another case where you got all these wonderful writers who who were going to contribute something to because uh, the, the book is a series of interviews. So why not why not assign a writing team a certain person to write a song for? I was lucky enough to get Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, Abby, and she <laughs> wrote the song together, and I, that was so inspiring to, wow. to write that song for her. Um, so, and those those feel exactly right. But I don't think that the model of um, of a composer or a composer lyricist. Um, that, that's not going anywhere because part of what we love is we like hearing 
a person's voice in mm-hmm. that role. And I know that I love to write musicals, but in this case, as, as Tina says, it just seemed like a natural fit. And certainly it was our job to, to um, um, make that a reality. Um, and it's, it's certainly an enormous challenge, but it can work. Here's what I think should happen on every show that anyone ever does, <laughs> is they should consider it as if for the first time. They mm-hmm. should think, what are the possibilities for what this show might be, how it might be written, how it, because any formula of, oh, this is the way we do a musical, and it's this person who does the music and the lyrics, without our knowing, can somehow start to bind and limit our imaginations. So if we really want to infuse new, fresh life into theater as an art form, which I think we all do and have to, um, you know, let the possibilities be endless and open. And every time you start a show, think, what what is the best way to express this story or idea? And who knows what what the form might end up being. Yeah, that's a inspiring idea. Um, before you all go away, back to the world of the sponge, um, I we talked a lot about the John Legend song, but I'm curious just to hear from all of you, uh, you know, if you have a favorite song in the show or not, we can't talk about favorites, but um, I'm curious just to hear stories, any stories about the artists that worked on the music that were maybe surprising. I mean, I when I think about the songs that stood out to me, Obviously, the Cindy Lauper one, I was like, well, Cindy Lauper can write for theater. We know that now. <laughs> but um, I like the Plain White Tees song a lot, and I like the Panic at the Disco song, um, I remember. Uh, but w- were you especially surprised by anyone in terms of like what they turned in or what they were capable of? Well, you know, the Plain White Tees song, BFF, was the first song um, written yeah. for the show. And I think that was the moment we were all like, oh, wait, this could work. <laughs> I mean, look, I have endless stories about my, my communication with these these colorful, idiosyncratic artists. Um, I have a collection that, you know, only belongs to me of um, text messages and phone messages. I have I have text messages from Wayne Coyne of the Flaming Lips that no one would believe, <laughs> including images and videos he sends me. And um, I have a, a lot from Cindy. Um, I have an amazing recordings from um, Joe Perry and Steven Tyler in different <laughs> places, sending me themselves singing on the phone or or doing something on the phone to uh, convey the idea of Bikini Bottom Boogie. Mm-hmm. So, you know, to me, one of the pleasures of this was even seeing like their delivery systems mm-hmm. for the songs because they were all so unique. You know, Yolanda Adams, Super Sea Star Savior, turned in a gloriously produced full number, as did T.I. Um, for the section of Going Gets Tough that he did with his son, I believe, rapping mm-hmm. on it. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so that, to me, was is the amazing thing, is I could go on forever. Like, I could go through each song and say how amazing it was to be in contact with that person and how they gave us what they gave us. Uh, you know, I, I the first thing that I, I feel like I heard... Um, was Jonathan Colton's opening number, and I'll just always remember the joy from 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 the ukulele line he wrote to suddenly the layering. I'm 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 a folk rock guitar freak. I mean, I just it's something that I live for, and um, 
and Jonathan layering of, of guitars um, and then his beautiful voice mm-hmm. I mean, he's got this gorgeous voice on top of it and it just opened my heart and I just thought oh oh that's that's what this musical is gonna mm. be this is gonna be really fun um, and and then now to look back and see what that opening number I mean how much work we've all done on it to I mean one of the last things that we did was 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 I think Tina's dream of we're going to just they're going to be in the aisles and we're going to open up the world of Bikini Bottom and it's going to be thrilling a visual spectacle and and beautiful music and um, so so to, to to go back to that very first demo and then see mm. how far we've come I think every song mm-hmm. has that journey and now however many, many years later it feels very gratifying but it's also going to be so wonderful to see how SpongeBob continues to evolve because these musicals they live on and mm-hmm. we talked about a tour this morning um you know we're we're um spongebob we're still learning from spongebob and it's, there's gonna be new audiences and new things mm-hmm. to discover and that's mm-hmm. that's what's so wonderful about theater ethan what about you yeah oh um <laughs> i would say uh one of the one of the great things about the past couple of years is i've gotten to perform with tom higginson of the plain white tees a couple of times mm-hmm. where we sang bff together um yeah and the experience of doing that was like so special for so many reasons, but one of which was he just like, he really captured the spirit of this collaboration, um, you know, that, that I've been experiencing on all ends, but he, he really captured it by like being so generous with singing it with me. Um, you know, he wrote the song and, and he was playing it on guitar, but we were just like, we were really in it together. Um, and that was, that was really, that's been really super cool. And, and he's a really awesome, awesome person. Yes. Um, and then the, the other quick thing I want to say is that, uh, there are so many things that Tom has written in this show <laughs> that may, that maybe didn't make it to stage. Um, that, you know, we got to experience him writing in the room and they just like would bring you to tears every time. Um, and, and one experience that I will never forget for as long as I live oh. is the, um, is when we knew that there was a reprise of simple sponge while I was climbing what would turn out to be a ladder wall. And we didn't have the ladder wall and we didn't really have the music yet. And Tom was sort of messing around with this thing in, you know, in five and like, you know, it had the feel of Simple Sponge. And Tina said, why don't you guys go into the other room and come back in 20 minutes and, and <laughs> we'll see we'll see what you have. And so I got to be in a room one on one with the legendary Tom Kit, um, you know, trying out ideas and seeing what might be what might be right for that moment. Um, and uh, that that's that's ing- etched into my brain forever as as uh, one of the best experiences of this you know lifelong best experience thank you ethan thank you it's it's so true can I you tell a lot of people that can you tell that friends. we all like each other <laughs> i know this is this is getting very warm and funny. <laughs> i was going to say was it the literal best day ever <laughs> Well, it really, it really was. It was amazing. Yes. <laughs> well, on that warm and fuzzy note, I will say thank you to all of you. This is a great uh, chat. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, this was fun. SpongeBob SquarePants is playing at the Palace Theater on Broadway now, and you can find the original Broadway cast recording wherever you buy or stream your music. 
in the weeks leading up to the Tonys soon. I should have some more exciting guests uh, among the nominees this year. So please come back, subscribe if you haven't already, give us lots of stars and nice reviews on iTunes. You can find me on Twitter at Rebecca Millsoff, on Instagram at YaDownWithRMM. You can always use hashtag Billboard on Broadway to talk about the podcast on social media if you would like and hope to have you back next week. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.